Hey science fans, I have another fantastic podcast to recommend to you guys. The Waterline Podcast. Everything you need to know about the science of water. Have we managed to develop the most sustainable irrigation techniques? Can water be the bringer of peace? Can flushing your toilet light up your house? The answer to all of these questions and many more in the Waterline Podcast which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech as part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. It's a new podcast that, uh, is, that is created to communicate the many facets of water. So please, check out an episode. I've, uh, I've checked out several. I actually went back and listened to the very first episode, which gives you a nice overview of uh, sources of fresh water all around the world, rivers, lakes, underground sources, and to see how, how delicate they are, how prone they are to contamination. This is exceptionally important stuff for our world and our future, and I highly recommend this podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Hello, everybody. I have something quick I need to update you all with. Um, I'm going to try to keep it brief because I already feel like these intros are sometimes um, too long. I, I sometimes forget um, something that was already covered in the beginning of the episode and end up saying it in the intro. And then uh sounds like I'm repeating myself just because I haven't listened to the thing in a month. Um, but uh, and why am I saying all of this now? Probably don't need to. I, uh, today I have just a little bit of a note. I have, uh, for those of you that have been following me on Twitter and Facebook, you know, that last year I broke my feet. Um, I've been talking about it a bit in the podcast as well. One of my feet, one of my heels needed major surgery. Uh, there are some complications with that and some infections in the hardware. So, uh, last Monday, um, about a week ago, I had, um, the, uh, a surgery to have the hardware taken out again and um and they have me on IV antibiotics and all of this stuff and so to get this infection under control I need to be on this stuff three times a day um which is a bit of a of a pain but um it will it will be all good in the long run um I'm only bringing it up because unfortunately I had to uh doctor's orders I had to cancel 4 weeks of work and so uh I hope you weren't um planning on coming to see me in February although I will be back I'll be in San Antonio at the end of February if you check my schedule everything should be um coming up to date um quite shortly and uh, so yeah, I just wanted to share that with you guys. I'll I'll put more details on Facebook and Twitter for you. And um, anyway, let's let's start the show. This episode, um, I I met with uh, Jeremy Genovese. If you've been listening, the the memory guy uh, wrote the book on memory, remembering Willie Nelson. Had nothing to do with Willie Nelson. Everything to do with memory. Remember that? Good. It worked. Um, so. I was swinging back through Cleveland um, a couple months ago, got a hold of Jeremy because he was such a great guest, asked him if he knew of anyone uh, <laughs> who would be interesting to talk to, and um, 
and he asked me how I would like to hear about um, uh, freshwater mussels um, for an hour, and I thought that sounded fantastic to me, which is the difference between me now and me um, 10 years ago. Uh, is that growth that I'm super interested in hearing about freshwater mussels for an hour? I think so. Uh, it's way more entertaining than I'm sure it probably sounds like at first to some of you, uh, because my guest is fantastically entertaining. Uh, he, he was, he even was like, uh, are you sure you want to talk to me about freshwater mussels? I don't know if you'll have much to say. To say about it, but it was uh, it was really good. We talked about flies as well. We talked a lot about the ecosystem, and I think there are a lot of things in this episode that are going to be setting up a lot of other um, non-human behavior uh, coming up in the future. So I hope you enjoy uh, my fantastic guest. Bob Krebs. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody. This is Shane Moss. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm back in Cleveland um, this week. Uh, Jeremy Genovese, who I, I had on talking about memory, I asked him for referrals. I told him I was coming back through Cleveland, and he uh, recommended Bob Krebs to me, who is the uh, who is professor of biology here at Cleveland State University, and my new favorite guest because he's the first person so far that's come to one of my comedy shows. Uh, he came last night and checked out my show at Hilarities. In Cleveland, did you enjoy yourself? I enjoyed it very much. You could, like I said, I've I never mean, done I this won't before. Know if you're lying. So. No, you. Won't, but <laughs> the funny part is, is now having actually watched you in advance as opposed to afterwards. I, I wanted to ask you because you put a lot of science into your show. I feel like interviewing you, but it's not yeah. the way it works. This <laughs> way. No, no, this is like meant to be a conversation. Imagine we're having lunch right now. Only there's these weird microphones in front of our faces. That's I got the idea for this podcast because I was having lunch with various scientists trying to put different projects together, and I had all these interesting conversations, and I was like, oh, well, let's just, uh, uh, I, I want to just record that. So that's what I'm going for um, with this, and, uh, and I, I do appreciate, oh, this is another thing, as I am forgetting to turn the ringer off on my phone, I'll share with you. Um, here's another reason why I liked Bob because, and I, I could tell he had a good sense of humor. I'm going to, I'm going to share a quote from an email. I don't mean to make you uncomfortable here, but for, for fans of mine, if you've seen my special on mating season on Netflix, which by now, come on, you should have seen my special mating season on Netflix and rated it five stars. It's the least you can do to help me out for getting to listen to this wonderful, mind-blowing free podcast where you're learning everything there is to know about life. Um, so Bob, uh, in an email, he, he said, I watched some of your clips, and he said, butt screaming is apparently an autosomal uh, dominant with male-limited expression, given that you didn't suggest any women in the family getting the affliction. I love a good nerd joke. 
These are the jokes that I'm striving for one day. This is what we're building towards once people are familiar with my stuff. I wouldn't call it an affliction, uh, the butt screaming. I don't, I, don't, I don't consider it a curse. I consider it a gift. Um, but, um, uh, but so Bob was the first one to come and, and see a, uh, a comedy show. How was my science? The science was good. That's what got me rather attracted. So the only thing I've actually seen of you, because I don't get Netflix either, but I will try to round that up, was uh, your use of natural selection and thinking about the whole adaptation of learning, right? When you go into, through a show and you start talking about why people really do focus on the negative. And I'm getting the elbow from my wife about you're focusing on the negative <laughs> way too much. But it actually makes sense because that's the learning. You want to learn how not to repeat the negative actions. Yeah. Whereas... It's amazing that we don't really remember the happy times as well. You might say, oh, I had a really good time at that party. But you'll still remember the event that was negative there. Yeah. And it really does get into the natural selection aspects that apply in behavior. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, it's really it's changed the way that I've thought about life. And, and that's, I mean, that's part of it. I try to, when I find something interesting that changes my worldview, then I try to craft it to an audience. You're hearing about what my news show is about. So if you come out and see me live, this is a lot of what my news show is about. And um, it does, it, it does, because when you're happy and you're having a good time, you're never really conscious of it. It kind of just passes right through you. And then these good times come and go. And, um, but, um, but anyway, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. We don't, we don't have to talk about me um, for the whole uh, episode. I want to talk about, uh, your work, I'm not quite sure where to start. I'm torn between do we start with what you're doing now or do we backtrack and start from the beginning? What What are you the most comfortable with? Because I have, you want to start from the beginning? No, this, the beginning was a little too long ago. I mean, <laughs> you know, where does one go from? Well, it was interesting because you started with like mating research on flies, um, right? Well, I can actually even go one step back further, which I have to admit my mother rather enjoyed, was I started with mating behavior of butterflies. Oh, yeah, butterflies as well. Right. So it was basically, and in, in why do females like pretty males and vice versa? So, what, so I spent, that, I spent uh, two years working with that as a master's student. And she thought, well, that made more sense because she could go to her ladies at the bridge club and talk about you know, these, these eastern tiger swallowtails, which everybody sees. And uh, then I switched to Drosophila, which she had absolutely no interest of and stuck with it for 20 years. Yeah, these ugly little flies that no one cares about and everyone's perfectly happy to dissect and pull the wings off of. And um, I, uh, well, I, I asked because I had someone on here. Um, I, I had, uh, I, I had uh, Todd Shuckleford on here um, talking about sperm competition. And so we were talking about fly penises and all of that uh, other good stuff. What can you and, tell me about butterflies? Uh, well, with butterflies, was was very interesting is that you'll often find a lot more variation in the females than in the males because the females are, are picky. The male can't allow his color pattern to change very much and still be able to induce a female to mate. And males, like in most species, just aren't that picky. And so if the female gains a survival advantage by altering a color pattern, to look either like vegetation or to look like a non-palatable species, something called mimicry, she can do that much more easily than the male can. And so you have these cases where sometimes you'll have polymorphic, meaning different forms of females in a population, but always just one form of the male. 
Ah, uh, so so you got all these different ladies with all this various camouflage and everything else, and all these defenses against being eaten by what 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 kind of predators? Usually birds. Birds and uh, and and then, but these males have to wear a big red flag because this is a sexy thing for for a lady, be, probably because of the cost incurred by that. But yet here he is flying around anyway, so he's gotten this far. So in some ways, my beginning was the most fun project because I'd go into the art store to be buying paints. And they said, well, what's these for? So I paint butterflies. Oh, I'd love to see your work. And I'd pause and I'd say, I don't think you understand. I paint the butterflies. <laughs> I take actual butterflies. I paint their wings different colors, send them out and see like, if they get it, it, how they do on the mating market. And it declines, which is what you'd sort of expect. So it wasn't that novel, but in the 80s at the time, there was a big argument whether females had choice. And yeah. that's something that's changed over time now. Now it's really accepted that, that both genders are very involved in the mating rituals that we see in animals. Yeah, I mean, well, a lot of people talk female control um, now. Um Right, it's almost reversed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, because I have, I've read stuff with birds where you put like a different color um, ring marker on like a bird's leg and all of a sudden this blue color or whatever color sure. happens to be just happens to be the one that catches all the ladies' eyes. And now this guy went from the loser to the to big the shot around town and all, all the ladies want, <laughs> want him. I'm just I, uh, that's why I keep on trying different uh, shirts on and and uh, seeing what what uh, works for me. One day, all of the ladies just out of nowhere, I'm hoping, are going to. Uh, it's all a matter of time. Or maybe I just need to paint myself. Or something. have you found your little uh, niche yet? Have you been <laughs> Have you been trying out? I I met your wife uh, briefly last night. Stay away from I stay away from humans as much as I I can <laughs> on that. I'm on the second wife, so I I can't be the world's... I'm not going to claim to be an expert on on what humans should be doing. I do a lot better with animals. Fair enough. And then I saw you did some stuff with... um, uh, Which reminded me of... So I just had some some guests on um, from Ann Arbor. Um, One of them um, was... uh, she, She studied... Well, this is human populations of, of um, we studied genomes and um, the, the changes in the genome of, of high altitude populations. Mm-hmm. I saw you did some work with flies where you were uh, something with, with heat and uh, heat tolerance or something sure. like that. I think that was probably for the longest time. That's what probably got me the job here was some really nice work looking at it doesn't portray as well under this sort of a setting because it was the more detailed molecular work, but they had a, a kind of a nice title to them. They were called heat shock proteins and how organisms would express heat shock proteins in response to changing environments. And uh, so I, it kind of left the mating system side for uh, several years of my life, but it was getting more into this idea about how do organisms actually adapt to nature, and we'd always call these model organisms because there are fruit flies. Nobody really cared whether the fruit flies were successful or not successful, but they're easy to rear. They were unlimited. Nobody really cared how you really worked with them because they were just fruit flies. Yeah, um, there weren't the uh, the PETA people aren't uh, aren't with their fruit fly banners and everything else. Yeah. So. Even if you're harsh to butterflies, people almost like, but they're butterflies. They're pretty, right? We have in you, you know, as as people, 
we have this sort of view that bigger is better. Big animals we tend to pay more attention to than small animals. And colorful animals we pay more attention to than non-colorful animals. Why do you think that is? I think that's wild speculation is fine. Oh, it is wild speculation. It's 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 what's it's what's visible to us, right? Butterflies are diurnal animals; they're out and active all the time. So are Drosophila, but these little fruit flies are all of about uh, the big ones might make it to a quarter of an inch, right? So you don't even actually see them. I guess actually probably a good bit smaller than a quarter of an inch, and they're living on rotting fruit. So at least we call them fruit flies; they're not actually causing an agricultural problem. But I can go out to, we're here in Cleveland, Patterson's Fruit Farm, I think, is the, is the best known in the area. And if I go at this time of the year, being or middle of October, all the apples that weren't harvested are still lying and rotting on the ground, and I could collect hundreds of thousands of these. Oh. They're very abundant. Do you all know them, or people will know them more because they get, they're small enough to get in through the screens. So even if you leave rotting fruit out too long, they'll be in your house because they can go right through the screens. I have uh, I found that in LA. Um, uh, so, so what what happened with um, how do these adaptations and how and how did you test that? Uh, he, so you were just burning flies to well, see if they could handle it. Well, one hates to say it that brutally <laughs> honest, but in a sense, actually, there is a lot of physiological work that goes into that sort of direction. You use environmentally realistic. Um, Situations And one has to also accept that nature is really cruel. I mean, right, all of these small insects face these same stresses out in nature. So if you're trying to actually learn about how something, whether it's think about from evolved, and in this case also the physio- physiological changes, you know, we had some very nice techniques that we can actually quantify protein expression of these heat shock proteins and correlate that and basically look at the relationship between expression of heat shock proteins how much they were expressed, and how well they could handle higher temperatures. And so it did you know, result in that we'd take flies in these little glass vials and we'd raise them up to temperatures up around close to human body heat and, uh, and see how well they did versus animals that had different levels of expression. And they must adapt fairly quickly. What's the, what's the generation of a fruit fly? The generation is two to three weeks. Okay. So they, they can change incredibly rapidly. And if we do it in the laboratory, right, you can see this and, and set up experiments. Um, I think one of the most amazing ones that actually surprised me was we were looking at the ability to, to, um, to fly. And this is actually, I think, the funniest side of, of my work with uh, working with heat shock proteins in in Drosophila and trying to look at what we call thermal uh, stress resistance is that the first thing before they get to the level that it's going to kill them, it seems to knock out flight musculature. So in the adult flies, the first thing that seems to get in trouble is the muscles that control the wings. And so a huge number of these animals, they'd survive the heat shock and they would never fly again. And so the lab joke is we were basically converting a fly to a walk. <laughs> I like that. That's a, it's a fun pun. I it, it becomes that. fun, and it's learning about the physiology. We think of an animal, the whole animal, as, as if the whole, as if the animal's equal, and all the parts of it are equal. But actually, when you put a body under stress, what you get a chance to observe is what's the weakest link. I remember. Uh, so I worked. Um, I have this very distinct memory of uh, I, I worked in a um, in a factory for four years in Wisconsin, a furniture factory um, that I, I've joked about on stage and st- such before, but maybe I shouldn't name them right now. But um, 
But um, yeah, I, I would. I actually went there. I don't drink anymore, but I I had a. I, I knew I had a problem with alcohol for a very long time, ever since I first got my hands on alcohol. Just and I, I never handled myself well. So I started working third shift in this factory so I wouldn't be able to go out with all my friends to the bars and stuff. Well, I ended up going with my new co-worker friends to the bars at 6 in the morning after, which that sounds crazy, but that's, the, that's when you're done with work. So it's right. just... You know, that's your seemed, nighttime. Yeah, that's our nighttime. And so we'd go to this uh, at, at the time. I don't know if it still exists in Arcadia, Wisconsin. Dan's bar. And I went there and back that they let me uh, they let me drink before I was of age and everything. It has new owners now, so I'm not afraid to say this. And and this is what I remember. There would always be like these mystery shots. Um, it was always just like whatever bottles of booze that, that weren't selling good. You, oh, you okay. could get shots for like 50 cents or, you know, whatever. Um, and, and, uh, and it was always like some crappy fruity, um, shot that no one had any interest in. And I'd remember sometimes they'd pour the shot and it would be full of these fruit flies. Oh, okay. And, and, uh, <laughs> And that's my first experience with with uh, with thinking about fruit flies and how they survive in a different environment. And so, so maybe these flies that grew a higher tolerance for alcohol were able to survive longer in this bar environment. And, and that's been shown that actually works that way. <laughs> there is they have an alcohol dehydrogenase locus. They have a, a different sets of really? alleles. Um, I had a well, friend that worked if they're, with, if they're doing like fermenting fruit anyway, they must have some sort of tolerance. Sure. Uh, particularly the Drosophila melanogaster, which is the one that you were probably consuming. <laughs> and I'm sure you did. Oh, yeah. Plenty. Uh, it's, it's a commensal with humans now. And, and where they found they go into wineries. A friend of mine had worked out in Cordoba, Spain, in the open vats where they make sherry the old-fashioned way with thick layers of yeast actually just exposed to the air. And they'd just be crawling with Drosophila larvae. If you saw this, you'd never drink sherry again. Um, but, of course, it's all scooped off and filtered, <laughs> so it never gets into the bottles. What you faced was this, this issue that they must have left the bottles open and things yeah. were getting around to them. You know, you know what's interesting is uh, about that is I, went, I spent some time in Ireland, probably eh, two months or so total, and I took a tour of a Guinness factory one time. Um, there's a comic friend got us in there, gave us like a VIP tour, and we we got the whole spiel. Well, I don't know if they tell this to the regular people, but because this guy who worked there and was giving this us kind of like a special tour, um, he was he was telling us about how in the early days of Guinness, um, rats would sometimes fall into the machinery. Oof. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know, as someone's drinking Guinness, listening to this podcast right now, they just put that beer down. Um, I mean, we're talking very early 1900s, I believe. Maybe not even 1900s. I forget exactly when this was. There was like at one point, uh, a quarter of Ireland's population worked for Guinness. Okay. Uh, this is big business. And so some of these rats would get into the system. They'd get grinded up, and, you, you know, you'd just... Uh, it was just part of the process at the time. Well, then, as time goes on, 
and they start like with the um sorry what, what was the what was in the wine uh again sherry was it just all the fruit flies and everything oh, it's in the, the with sherry it's you'll actually have, it's all fermentation produced. Right. So there'd be a thick layer of yeast that would sit on the surface because the yeast is what's making the alcohol, of course. Right, right. And the larvae, what, what the flies oh, like right. is, the larvae. The, they're cued to the alcohol, which attracts them there, but it's actually, they're laying eggs in these yeast, thick yeasts, and the larvae eat the yeast in the microbes. Ah, okay. So so very similar to that, but with rats, what they, what they decided on after a while was, uh, you know, someone came in, found out about mm-hmm. that all these rats are getting in, we need to put an end to this. They did whatever to the machinery to stop this from happening, and then um, uh, got all the rat blood out of the Guinness. And then all of a sudden people started complaining about the, the Guinness. They were, they were like, I don't know what you guys have been doing different lately, but it's not as good as it used to be. So then they had to find something like rat blood to like add into the flavoring to bring that flavor back in uh, in the Guinness. It was just, uh, it's interesting how hmm. how everything kind of evolves. That, that no, I, I can see the brewery having the problem because the rats are coming in because of the amount of grain they would have on, on premises and all the storage of right. that. <laughs> I'm just a little concerned here because at your show last night, I'm always, when I go out, if I order a beer, it's almost always a dark beer. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I think dark beer is my favorite. So too. I did not order Guinness last night, but I almost <laughs> did. I switched to a different porter because I hadn't recognized it and I thought I'd try something new. But They definitely <laughs> don't have rat's blood. In, in, no. in 2014, the FDA I has think changed. there's a very small <laughs> amount of rat blood in, in a given uh, Guinness. So you... Um, so... You burnt these flies to death for a while, and then what was um, what you get into next? Okay, you want to say burnt them to death? <laughs> they did get heat, and yes, some proportion of them would, pa- would, would pass away under that. Um, you can. You're welcome to correct me. That's I mean. fine. <laughs> it's it's the public perception of science in in some respects in terms of what we work on. But these were model organisms, and and often. The sort of work we do to try to understand how the body works. Oh, you work this with animals is very that important this. stuff. I don't give a damn about these fruit. No. I think this is very important. We had uh, we, uh, my my guest, my old friend Paul Phelps. He did a, a bunch of stuff with um, with uh, dissecting fruit flies and changing um, different things. I, I forget what we even talked about. But fruit flies are a very essential part of the oh. scientific community and of learning because, like you said, they're just abundant and uh, small. People don't care about them. But they really are advancing science in yeah. big way. Everyone's working on fruit flies. And what people don't realize is the same proteins in fruit flies are almost interchangeable with humans. Like the heat shock proteins I've used, they could actually show that you could put a human heat shock protein into the fly, it operated the same way. They're still that similar. What? The basic proteins, you know, in organisms, when you think of the basic sort of genes or proteins that control cell function, they were laid down 800 million years or more ago. Yeah. Probably a good bit farther. And so... They're the same. They still have the same functions, or at least they're similar enough that they can interchange. Now, they've never done the opposite experiment for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, there's certain rules and, and boundaries that one doesn't want to quite break. Wasn't that a movie, like a Jeff Goldblum movie or something like that? Well, The that? Fly, sure. It, but it, What was the name of the, it? Just The Fly. Yeah, I, I was very, very young when that came out. That, was like and that was the remake, but that's... Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but in a sense... Uh, 
so flies were, were an incredibly part of our research. They still are a big part. It's declining a little bit because now we have the techniques for what they do with cell cultures and, and particularly a lot of human cell cultures. So we can do a lot of the experiments now that just we didn't have the technology to do 15 years ago. And so there's a big movement now to more and more of the medical research can actually work on um, human tissue that's grown up basically in Petri dishes. But if you go back even by the mid-1990s, I mean, all the work was using model organisms. Still, mice and rats are still a cre- uh, an incredible uh, role in this. Fruit flies had always been a big role. So most of our medical knowledge comes out of working with these model organisms. Mm-hmm. But as I became more and more involved in the uh, ecological groups here at Cleveland State and working more with students when I have a, a long-term job, I started to start moving away from these model organisms because the students wanted to get out and work with something a bit more real. And so while I still continued for a while working on the, on the Drosophila projects, we had a big group here looking at problems with our local rivers. And one of the real sentinel species of the rivers are freshwater mussels, things that most of the public doesn't even realize are present. Because we think, all right, so yeah, we realize things live in rivers. Lots of things live in rivers. Most people are familiar with fish because we can go and fish. But we actually have these things that look like seashells, clams. And some of them can be five or even as long as 10 inches across. I mean, these are some big, big shells that you can get even in our local disgusting rivers like the Cuyahoga, which <laughs> obtains some national repute. Um, the first comedian made fun of the fact that said, if highlight Cleveland, let's bring back the Burning River. But in practice, this was the river that had uh, simulated the Clean Water Act because of its fires. Um, the Clean Water Act was passed in the 1970s and modified through various forms. And this river has been, they've been working to clean it up ever since. And now these freshwater mussels, which almost completely disappeared from the lower part of the river, um, are starting to slowly migrate their way down and try to come back in these areas. It is not the Burning River anymore. The beer from the Great Lakes Brewery that's called Burning River is great, but it's not being represented by the river very effectively. I didn't realize they were uh, they got that large, five to ten inches. Did you say? Yeah, it's it's, it's a radio broadcast. But what do you say when you start pulling out mussels? That no, these are big things. People think of oh, maybe there'd be some small little clams in these rivers. Um, when they're clean, and they, does, it, they do require to be clean, these, these large freshwater mussels, which are characterized as being one of the most imperiled groups in the, uh, of, of animals in the country, mainly because they have to have clean water. They're almost the first thing that gets wiped out when, you, when, you, when the rivers start getting polluted. Mm. But what we're finally starting to see in the last 10 years, that all this attention to the environment is we're starting to have cases now where people aren't just monitoring the loss of these animals, we're starting to see them return to rivers. And so that's kind of exciting. Yeah, that's a very rare thing in the modern world. Or, or in, in the, the course of human history, we have a very long history starting from when, when humans finally started getting their shit together 75,000 years ago or so. And and started banding together, and however they figured out how to cooperate, uh, and you know various theories. But but we essentially just started kind of wiping out everything, starting with the big species that we are talking about. You did some work in Australia. There used to be all sorts of enormous kangaroos and things like that. That we went into Australia. They had never seen these mm-hmm. goofy-looking um, humans before. They didn't look like much, and then we just. Uh, you know, came into America and 
uh, saber-toothed tiger is like, well, look at this free meal over here, these goofy-looking things, and nets and spears, and they wiped out the whole population. And then we just kind of... <laughs> We've just kind of kept on that that trend up for 75,000 years or so and then just started it's amazing that really just in in my lifetime pretty much is when these things have started turning around for the first time ever just about this this idea of conservation this idea that uh-oh we're we're killing everything we're running out of things and this is actually starting to affect us. That's right. No, and this is since it's getting a big publicity this year because it's the hundredth anniversary of the loss of Martha, the last passenger passenger pigeon. Right? These these birds that thought to be at one time probably the most abundant bird in the world, and the last one died in 1914 uh, because they they tended to nest and breed in these groups of a hundred thousand or more birds, and once the numbers got down low, they just Quit successfully breeding, mm. and uh, and they vanished. And so there's been a big. Um, the conservation groups have used this as sort of a kind of a target species this year to mark this hundredth anniversary because it was even recognized there. There were some certain acts of Congress were coming in and saying it was the the, the species that actually began the sort of environmental movement because nobody thought that something that numerous. Right, you have rare things. You can you can imagine losing rare things. How like do you lose a common thing? Right. Like that. You know, when you, when you get down to a small number of species or an animal that you can only have one animal in five square miles, yeah, you can see losing that. But how do you lose an animal that's so abundant you could just simply harvest these things in mass? And it is now that we're, we're looking at these sort of comeback in animals. We're starting to learn what it is that's causing the problems in the environment, right? It was only, I'm not good with dates either, but so I figure everybody else is the same problem. Two or three years ago, I thought it was a very interesting news report when they said they've downgraded the bald eagle to threatened. I said, wait a minute, your terminology's wrong. Thanks for the story on the news. But when you were considered a, an endangered species and now you've been listed as a threatened species, that's not a downgrade, that's an upgrade. <laughs> right, right, right. Meaning that they're starting to become numerous enough. And here in the Great Lakes, you know, it's, it's really obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, I never saw my first bald eagle until the day before they were, in a sense, taken off the endangered species list. And the next day they made the announcement, so I say, hey, yes, I found, I saw an endangered species. I'm from Wisconsin, so I... In Wisconsin, you, you, they were abundant yeah. still, right? right? Up on the, the lakes, the Great Lakes states, because, you know, people think of what's the bald eagle do? Well, they, they collect a lot of carrion, but they also, they mostly fish. And so the people that lived along the lakes, as the lakes started to clean up, the bald eagles started to come, uh, come back all through Michigan and Ohio and uh, Wisconsin. It's exciting. It's, uh, it's, it's, are you hopeful? Oh, I think they're, they're probably doing fine because they always hey, had I a base in, in, in general. Oh, in general, the, the that movement, converse, sure. Conservation's going. I mean, people are getting up their heads on straight and figuring this out. It's got a long way to go. but right. It's in a sense, what I try to advocate is everyone wants to do something. And it's not so much that we have to do something. You can't just clean up a river. The way to clean up a river, and it's really it's the rivers that are the biggest problem because we need the water. Mm-hmm. It, and it's used for so many things. But the way to keep them clean is just quit putting stuff into it. So the more investment that gets put into cleaning up sewer systems, and in Cleveland, Cleveland's made a phenomenal financial commitment to rebuild um, uh, uh, basically, I think, um, the combination of what used to be sewers and the rain runoff and trying to separate the two so you don't have a severe thunderstorm that causes an overflow of the sewer system so it all goes into the lake. 
yeah, it's as bad as it sounds, and the stuff you'd find washed up on shore would attest to that, right? But the cost of trying to rebuild these systems just sound crazy, and sometimes the public has to just recognize what it was, and somehow here it became approved because you had these fear mongers 15 years ago saying, yeah, but to make all these changes is going to triple the uh, the bills that we pay for, for sewage. Yep, it did too. Yeah. All right, but people acclimate. It's part of what you pay now. Right. And you don't have, you can actually use the beaches around Cleveland again. I mean, this is, a, this is just a big problem in life in general is that we often aren't seeing the true cost. When you go to the gas station, you go, three fifty four dollars this is outrageous. Uh, I bet you don't recognize that you're uh, paying a lot of your tax money for subsidies. You're paying for, you know, whatever uh, military costs are going into all of this. And, it, you know, that's getting off topic, of right. course. But um, uh, but but going uh, you know, just talking about the, the cost of conservation and, and what eating particular things and, and what, um, you know, living life in a certain way can do to your local environment and will affect you as early as, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now and affect your children and everything else. Um, but it's interesting that you use these, uh, that these, these muscles that you study can be used as a bit of a litmus test for clean water. But, by the way, I was curious. Did you eat mussels last well, night? Uh, did no, you see them I, on the menu? I try to. I'm a, I, I teach an in, intrazoology course, and the more I learn about mussels, the less I really like eating them because they're filter feeders. They, they eat, the mussels eat whatever happens to be in the water that they're from. So certainly from freshwater mussels, I'm commonly asked. In fact, even just uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was collecting them, and I'm showing these big ones to a, uh, just to a police officer that was, that was by, and we were just talking about, what was going on because I had to have permission to get into where, where we were working. He said, oh, those look big. Are they edible too? I go, well, they were eaten and they used to be eaten by Native Americans as sort of an um, emergency food. In fact, you know, if there's nothing else better to eat because they're filtering basically the muck that comes through the river. They eat the microbes. So you can imagine they're living in the mud. They taste like mud. You just maybe didn't ever eat mussels. So, but when you talk about, I enjoyed the mussels right. up until ten seconds, 10 ago. seconds ago. But the, the freshwater mussels that you eat, that in a sense the blue mussels that are out on a buffet are actually living in, in gravel and rocky areas up along the Atlantic coast. Mm. My only experience of that is I was reminded. I, I think I was down in Norfolk, Virginia once, and I don't want to pick on the seafood industry there. There's a lot of great seafood in Norfolk, but. A fellow I was with had ordered the mussels, and he just shook his head and says, "I knew not to order mussels this far south because as the as the area gets sandier or muddier, you get that into the mussel, and you could, you could taste the grittiness and the difference. You want to make sure that the mussels come farther north, ah, uh, get up above Pennsylvania, advice. and then they're actually uh, then they're they're much in a sense a cleaner animal. They don't tend to get all those small particle bits into into their tissue because it all gets incorporated." Ah, Glad I asked. So the good muscles are for Boston. Okay. Yeah, All right. Um, yeah, that's a, that's in a that lot area. Of, you you learn a lot of. You maybe don't want sushi in Wisconsin. You, you know, you pick up these things after. Where is it after from? After a while, <laughs> <laughs> where exactly is this from? Now I'll keep that in mind if I am ordering muscles, which I'm not sure I'll be able to after today. Um, but some of the work that uh, well, a lot of uh, a lot of your work is kind of based on. Um, the uh, studying population divergence 
Um, sure. Uh, right, which is, I mean, this is, if you can explain a little bit about this and set up some fundamentals, this is still very early on in um, the podcast. I think you're my 13th one today. Um, and it's a lucky number and, for you. And yeah, yeah, and we're doing it on October 13th. Um, and, um, and, and this is because population divergence, this is a big thing and this is a big evolutionary mechanism that, that creates a lot of diversity and is a big part of how we got here and everything else. So if, if you could uh, maybe introduce oh, some of these ideas. Also a good reason to stay away from humans because we can talk about diversity separation and whether we call them races or subspecies, that's a perfectly good conversation to have all about animals mm-hmm. and plants. And for anyone working with rivers, it's, it's sort of amazing because, you know, you look at anything, whether it's a fish, whether it's a mussel, whether it's a lot of these other small things, if you, if you know what a stonefly is, uh, these little animals that live in streams and they can't move around very much. And so every river is sort of its own little population. And so the big problem you have in the conservation world is how different these animals if we do want to try to do any sort of conservation how do you move things around are you actually then bringing in animals that are genetically different from what lives in this river and genetic diversity is really just a matter of time and how long groups have been separated this is like what darwin kind of first stumbled on was was, was all the very idea was was that there was these islands that had been separated over time and these populations diverged and um, took off in different ways in different environments. Sure, islands are the best place to look because they've been separated for the longest time, and you can you can clearly see well, you know, things just can't get out there very often. Or lakes, or lakes. Same and thing. This is well, what I started switching over. I used to do a lot of divergence work with Drosophila, and some of these animals would collect a Drosophila on about four different continents. But what made it exciting here is if I want to really work with students, I can't be sending students all over the world. And with rivers, and you think, well, you got the river, they're all connected to Lake Erie. But lake environments are very different from river environments. Rivers and flowing water is a completely different world. And the different, a lot of the species that live there are different than the ones that tend to predominate or be predominant in lakes. And so the animals don't move back and forth as much as you'd think they were. One of my students worked on smallmouth bass. There's a fish that most of you are familiar with, right? They're everywhere. We even do bring those around because people will stock them. And there are smallmouth bass in the lake, and there are smallmouth bass in the river. But what was amazing until we looked at it, and he was using genetic markers. This is a a Cal Borden who's now up at uh, Saginaw State University. The lake fish didn't interact with the river fish. Lake fish would come into just the mouths of the rivers, just a little ways up the river to, to breed and lay eggs. But the river species would also go upstream. And so when it actually came down to the mating system, these fish that might be interacting a little bit during the non-mating times of the year, when it got around to mating, were tending to lay their eggs in completely different parts of the river. And therefore, they were, they were separated, and you wouldn't even be able to visualize any sort of geographic barrier. There's nothing that you could say, well, there's a dam here. There's plenty of dams in the rivers. But in this particular case, they were just separating themselves because you had a lake type of fish and you had a river type of fish, and they weren't into breeding very much. And you get, uh, after a while, you get these um, populations separated for long enough, and then you try to put them back together, and then they can't mate if they wanted to, and this is how species are. And that's your basic form of speciation in the short version. Mm -hmm. 
In this case, we're looking at the sort of separations because a lot of this, this separation um, is far more recent. Um, so we're not looking at different species, but you can still already go and look at rivers that are you know, a short drive apart because you're going overland. They're neighboring rivers, and there's a whole bunch of them that flow north into Lake Erie, and they all have very different, you know, if we, if we use genetic markers per se, you can actually tell what uh, what river a species came from by just taking a little clip. You don't even have to hurt it too much. I mean, just take a little tiny little clip, like a fingernail clipping off the animals and run its genetics, and you can tell that they're completely different populations. Um, and so, so what happens when, I mean, this is this is hard to it, let me rephrase this question. Um, what if because you're talking about what happens when you or the various things that can happen when you introduce this new foreign species into a new environment, which which they've tried numerous times, they'll be like, well, these pests are a pain in the butt, so we'll introduce this natural predator to this thing, and then this natural predator all of a sudden takes off and becomes a pest in and of itself and has just ruined your ecosystem because you got this thing from halfway around the world and you didn't realize that it was it was going to just explode and take over in this fruitful environment for this species. Um, so what ha have you seen anything in kind of that regard with, um, with what you're studying and with, with uh, mussels What's, or anything in the... Well, it's a little bit with invasive species, but in the Lake Erie area, there's the classic situation, which is continuing to go on, was the introduction of something called the zebra mussel and uh, another related species called the quagga mussel that supposedly came over in the, just the 1980s and the early 1990s in ballast water of ships. I mean, you can't keep everything out. And so these ships would be coming over from the Caspian Sea, Black Sea area of uh, Europe or East, either Eastern Europe or Western Asia, whichever you want to call it. And they would come into the lakes. We have the canals to come all the way through the St. Lawrence Seaway and come into Lake Erie. And they would, fulfill before filling up and exchanging the ships, they'd dump out their ballast water. They'd load the ship up. And in this ballast water were these, the, probably the juvenile stages or the larvae of these various mussel species. And they took off and just inundated the lakes. And they caused more damage than the pollution of the 70s in terms of uh, knocking out and really changing the environment of the lake. How they're changing isn't really clear because the weird thing is, like many of these introduced species, they're hard to find in the Black Sea. We have zillions of them. But to answer your question about what sort of responses and, and, and how to come back through this, well, there was another animal that came in, something called the round goby, which was also brought in unintentionally. Well, Brent, those gobies seem to like to eat zebra mussels. Hmm. And this is something I've been trying to get a few more people to understand is what's very interesting is people are saying, well, what can we do about it? How do we get rid of it? Well, at this point, they're in a lake. Right? We actually even have some sort of a chemical treatment that can be used to get rid of zebra mussels, and it's only licensed for like golf course ponds because you can only, you know, it's a matter of scale. It's, it's, it's actually fairly effective. It's even specific, but it's Lake Erie. You can't come up with, you can't produce it cost effectively to suddenly say we're going to clean out the Great Lakes. This is the biggest water system in the world. You're stuck. Right. But let nature get to work. And a lot of it is to do with the local animals. Right? You think, oh, it has no predators. Yeah, usually when these introduced species get into play, and whether we're talking about emerald ash borers on the trees here, right? once it spreads, 
we can really try to quarantine. It's not going to quarantine. We try to quarantine zebra mussels and they're very strict recommendations to boaters about cleaning up and not moving equipment that's still wet from one water system to another water system. And it's probably still spreading. But the neat thing is, is watching nature respond a little bit. Some of the aquatic turtles in the area realizing that, wait a minute, you know, for the first 10 years that these animals were here, they really had no predators. And then things start to learn how to eat them. There's a lot of shorebirds. I think it's is it cormorants that are just now becoming a little bit more abundant, almost at a pest level, because these birds figured out that these zebra mussels were good to eat too. And all of a sudden, what used to have be a food-limited species has an abundance of food. So we're looking at some native species that are now taking over and eating these things. And it's starting to allow, it's getting the population of these invasive species down low enough that we're slowly starting to look at the lake returning. It'll never be the same, mm-hmm. but maybe that's a little idealistic. Yeah, I mean, evolution has worked through a changing environment through uh, all of all of history. The environment's constantly been changing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, to, to think that we, we need to restore this one period of time from... 30 years ago, or I mean, you're just arbitrarily picking a a period of time to restore and then to keep that the exact same and and hope that nothing will ever change. That's just not going to happen either. 15,000 years ago, where we're sitting would have been under at least a mile of ice. (laughs) So uh, we don't want to return uh, to that. (laughs) (laughs) No. How long ago? Only 15,000 years. That was the, the last, because the last glacier tip still extended down this far, really. You mean Noah's beyond. Ark, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> or, yeah, I'm not going to get to that. It was a 4004 BC. but uh, 15,000 uh, years ago was the last ice age that rolled through here? Was the, As it was retreating. That's amazing. And so the ice was still probably here even up to around maybe 8,000, or still affecting this area up to about 8,000. It had retreated north of Lake Erie by 8,000 years ago. How did all this stuff get in here after the ice age? Uh, the, uh, okay, so the glaciers recede, and then how how does this stuff get in? How well, does the life get into the lakes right. in only 15,000 years? That is a very, that's a sliver. That's a sliver. So time. this is why we don't have any endemic species here, right? Because to be an endemic species suggests you've been separated long enough. So it comes back to that sort of question. So everything here, Lake Erie is still, in a sense, we don't want to call it depauper as if that makes it sound like there's hardly anything living there. But as a great lake, if you compare this to some of the big lakes in Africa or in Asia, we don't have that many species because everything does have to get here. And what is sort of interesting is that as the glaciers receded, you, you get a very funny situation, right? For those people, geography, all the Great Lakes flow out the St. Lawrence Seaway. So they actually flow all the way out into the North Atlantic. Well, that's where the ice still was. And so as the glaciers started melting, you had a very interesting situation in the Great Lakes that you had all this melting ice and nowhere to go because the, the lowest channel by way of land was still blocked by these huge ice dams, mile, a mile or two high. And so the lakes would basically fill up until they'd overflow. Mm. And they'd overflow, in, for example, in western Ohio, and they probably linked up with something called the Wabash River, which is a big river system that goes through, I think it's uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and down into the Ohio River. And so and all of a sudden you had a channel for fish to move in. And fish is actually freshwater mussels, if I stick on those. They're a strange animal. They, their larvae actually is uh, uh, 
parasitic on fish. The larvae come up and actually have these little, like the little clams with a little tooth on them and it'll grab hold of the side of the fish or clamp down on its gill and ride the fish upstream. Ah, and so for them, 15,000 years isn't a long time, so they'd slowly right. follow the fish back up into the lakes. But that means the source of animals here was a little slim. But there were places, they, the, some of the eastern rivers linked up, up around Niagara. Um, some of the, uh, uh, the western river, the big, the, what's thought to be the, probably the biggest group came in through connections up through the western rivers like the Illinois River into Lake Michigan and uh, what is the Maumee River now in Ohio, the uh, Lake Erie's biggest Ohio tributary would have connected up with these other rivers to the south. And so you had these connections formed where the lake was actually higher. Hmm. And some of this that people think is, we, th we think of the ground as being permanent. If you put two miles of ice on top of something, it even dirt actually still compresses. So the ground would compress, and then as it melts, it starts to rebound up. And so sometimes what you get is the capture of different pieces of river. So for example, the upper part of the Cuyahoga River, now this is a national audience, it's a river that has a very funny U-shaped look where it basically flows south, takes a right at Kent, at, uh, around near Kent State University or in Kent, Ohio, goes, flows west for a while, and then turns north. And that whole upper section was probably once part of the Ohio River. And because the, as the ground raised, all of a sudden the river kind of made a right turn instead of flowing south. And that meant all of that biota. So these animals that had lived up in, this, uh, in the upper Cuyahoga now is part of the Lake Erie. So it was another source of animals that could, that could come through. Hmm. Um, all right. So before we uh, wrap up, um, it, what is, uh, it, and, and I, I'll have a little, try to put a nice little bow on all of this, but um, what, what's the, the uh, charity of the week? Oh, in terms of this. Um, yeah. No, as much as I, I work with invertebrates on the charity standpoint, I, I think I just really kind of like people supporting zoos. I mean, it's my only place that I think I'm really kind of active with, of, of all places, uh, partly from an influence of a past student, was the American Association of Zookeepers, because everyone goes to zoos. I figure almost everyone goes to zoos. I know their popularity is really rising. And it's amazing that these people that help to work and care for these animals, they like to make sure you know, the zoo is just, they just working with a few individuals about back home. And so they've often done a variety of sorts of fundraisers to help raise conservation money to uh, help out those endangered species. Because I think most of us notice that what the zoos tend to uh, be populated with are the really rare things. Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I mean, this is the future of a lot of species is that if you want to see one of these things, this is the only place they're going to exist in zoos. So this is pretty important that we do something to at least preserve them. Um, and, and that's aazk.org. Um, you can go there and uh, you can donate money. You can, there's all sorts of, uh, there's, there's some sort of, uh, what is it, bowling? Bowling for, for rhinos. <laughs> they, they do fun activities. They, do, they sell articles. They, they're usually not after just direct contributions. And the okay. neat thing is with them is it's a completely volunteer organization. They don't have a paid overhead. Mm -hmm. So the money that gets donated to them is my understanding. If I'm wrong, I'll be disappointed. But my understanding is it's almost everything that gets donated to them is for the education and the, and the support of, the, of these animals out in nature. Oh, that's my, a lot of these charities is like seventy percent. Everything goes into like marketing and all of this other stuff, and and uh, never gets said what you're actually donating toward. So um, that's very cool. What's your are you you're so you're a bowler? I take it. 
I used to be in my youth. Now I, I bowl once a year for the rhinos. <laughs> yeah, what's your top score? Oh, historically 247. Bowling for the rhinos. Oh, man. Bowling for the rhinos, I think maybe a 162. Yeah, yeah. I, I once a the, year does not make a bowler. No, <laughs> no. I, I think I was 16. I got a trophy. I was in a bowling league. I bowled a 237. I didn't. You still beat me, but I was quite proud of my 230. I still have that trophy somewhere in my uh, oh, in my closet um, at my parents' house. Um, but uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm gonna once my foot's healed, I'm gonna get back out. Maybe I'll be able to because I think you can um, you can go and there's pretty much anywhere in your local area. You're somewhere near. Um, an area where where they have these fundraisers. They're all over the AAZK site. You, it's surprising if there's a major zoo in your area. There's almost certainly a uh, a group of these people that are active in doing various fundraisers. And different zoos will focus on different different animals depending what they've got. So, um, anything you want to uh, close with in particular? What do you? Where do you see? Uh, I mean, if you have any closing thoughts, that's fine. Otherwise, where do you see kind of? Uh, the future of your work going? What are you looking forward to studying in the future? Well, the real future of my work now is I'm getting more and more edu- educationally active here. We are getting to looking at the possibility in the future of starting to move muscles around. In other words, because we talked about this isolation where you've lost all the species, you start to identify what you can bring back into these rivers because they actually have an important function. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they change the whole ecosystem. They make it better for the whole river as a, uh, the river as a whole because they filter things through. But I'm probably moving more and more into the educational side, trying to actually educate more of the public to appreciate the wildlife. Uh, because uh, you're not just doing mussels now as well, you're doing other stuff, like uh, done some work with coyotes. Right? Even coyotes. And, and what's amazing here now, for those of you that are familiar with Cleveland at all, the east side has been always famous for being, in a sense, these tree-lined areas with a lot of city parks. And it's tough to get the public to start accepting the fact that Something has changed in wildlife. Wildlife is starting to live around people much more than ever before. So I'm in what's called the inner ring suburbs. I'm barely outside of the Cleveland city limits. I'm in, uh, I live in Cleveland Heights. And just in our property, deer are abundant. We've seen uh, all kinds of wildlife. Raccoons and skunk have been around for ages. The raccoon population is booming. It's a commensal. But now we're starting to find that the coyote, which had been sort of in the outlying areas, are actually being seen in our city as well. And they're, and they're very good. They've learned how to avoid being seen. And so that they're living around people with people not even realizing, hey, you've got 45-pound predators roaming through your backyard at night. I, I, well, out in Malibu, um, where I lived for years with my girlfriend at the time, and we had a, we had a little dog, um, very small dog, little Don Lickles, um, and this guy's the cutest little thing you ever seen, and we were always so worried because once in a while we would see a coyote at night coming through. Are they, uh, what are they, what are coyotes getting into? Are they eating anything they can get their hands on? Are they going to eat a small dog? Are they getting in your trash? Like, what do they... What are they surviving off of in an urban environment? I suppose it depends on the city. It depends on the city, but that's what we're actually looking at. If at the moment they tend to base, like anytime you have a park, enjoy the fact that you have a park. So they're living in kind of the park 
residential interface. They are getting into the garbage. The raccoons are still the leaders there. The skunks do a great job there. They pick up a lot of roadkill. Uh, squirrels around here are crazily abundant. Um, people don't realize that things like uh, coyotes will delete a lot of rodents. We get, you know, but we're not talking about city rats and city mice. These are field mice. Um, almost everything that was in the forests of the eastern United States, the eastern forests, 200 years ago, seemed to be coming back, despite the fact that there are houses everywhere. They're just learning how to adapt and living within a human landscape. Um, the deer population probably has a big part of that, because deer, which in the 1970s were becoming so low in numbers that there were very these great restrictions to hunters, where it's almost, you know, you're, you're allowed to take one buck and not touch a female, now are so abundant, right? People hunt deer all the time. And in fact, the deer have found that moving into these residential lands are probably becoming the real source populations because you can't hunt in a residential area and people love them and they feed them, whether it's legal or not in your area, people feed them. Pet food out on the porch is a great way to attract wildlife you don't <laughs> want around and you just can't get people to stop doing it. But you have to recognize this is where they live. My wife, I got a call from my wife at work one day describing some animal we're pulling book out. Why she can't wait till I get home. She never have said that online, but <laughs> you know it was very clear. She found a mink, and so I had to actually check with a friend. I'd never seen a mink in the wild, and he said, "Oh yes, no, we've started seeing them around the rivers, and they're starting to move back and forth." Right? All of these animals we don't think would be in a residential neighborhood are in residential neighborhoods now, and they're expanding. Right, the bobcat are coming in. They're in the eastern part of the city. And I don't think people want to know that, but I personally find that phenomenally interesting, and um, and I hope they do well. Might want to draw the line on bear, but unfortunately, the bear coming out of the Allegheny National Forest, uh, I think that's is in Pennsylvania, and they're been moving west, and they're coming back into Ohio. You just had everyone on your side, like conservation. Yes, let's bring these animals back, and then you're like. We're bringing all the bears back. And now people are like, oh, never mind. But the bear are the only ones they, they respond to. What I, what I find so fascinating is when people call up and complain about uh, the coyote. And what they really get upset about is they call the police department and they say, the coyote live here. Here's what you can do to help reduce their coming to your yard. But why are we going to try to trap something? They're all over. Right? If we trap, if, if one animal is a nuisance, maybe we'll deal with that one animal. But there's absolutely no movement here, and, and, I'm, and I really applaud that. The Ohio Department of Natural Resources is not trying to keep them out of the cities mm-hmm. because, first of all, it's impossible. So why expend a lot of resources for animals that are living because there is food here and there's habitat, and they're, they're learning how to bed down out of sight where people don't see them? Well, so coyotes aren't, like, attacking people, really. They're not attacking no. people. And, of course, you know, the day it happens, there'll be a, this giant outcry. Right. Um, but, yes, that means you, you do get much like if you live out in the Northwest, and I'm not sure, California's been dealing with them, San Francisco with coyote for far longer. If you get up into the state of Washington, you're dealing with mountain lions. We don't have mountain lions. But that does mean, yes, if you have really small children in your backyard, whether you have a fence or not, you probably want to watch them. Right. And it's more important, though, is I think the, the issue of small dogs. Mm. Um, and, and if you have a, a cat, you think it's, well, you have an outdoor cat, and if kitty doesn't come back, that's a concern. Right. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you. Everyone, keep your cats indoors. The coyotes are coming for them. 
Uh, thank you, Bob, so much for uh, coming in and, um, and and sharing all of your many, many years of knowledge with a diverse number of fields. That was very interesting. I learned a lot. I think the listeners learned a lot. And um, check out aazk.org. Uh, go bowling for rhinos. And thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope I didn't bum you out with my medical update. It wasn't meant to. Uh, this will be a good thing in the long term. I have a, I am going to have a, a real foot again rather than a cyborg one, which will be real nice. But you you want to do something to cheer me up, make me feel better? Um, well, one, you can donate to Bob's or any of my guests' um, charity uh site and it just go to the here we are podcast.com website and help people that need help more than me and also you can um you can do another um fantastic thing which you can go on itunes and stitcher and wherever you're listening to this and write me a review um hitting the old five stars that's nice i'll take it but if you can write a little blurb um, for whatever reason, those uh, those reviews, however um, the iTunes science works, maybe I'll have a guest on to talk about it sometime. I don't know. I'm not too terribly interested in it. I should be, but I'm not. Um, but for whatever reason, someone writes a review and that um, bumps everything up and it uh, just gets recommended to people more often and everything else. So if you're enjoying this show um, and you want it to keep going, I could keep getting better guests and everything like that um, when I have more uh, more listeners tuning in. Um, go and write me in a review and help me out. And I'm sorry this has been so long-winded. And the next week on the program, I am going to be... Talking to uh, a friend of, <laughs> why did everything just fall apart right now? I, I just have 10, 15 more seconds to go, and then it just everything, just shit hits the fan, and I forget how to talk. That's how it goes. Could stop it. Could re-record it. Not gonna. Um, next week on the program, friend of a friend, my, my friend Peter McGraw recommended a few people, and one of them... Um, is Rob Tanner, who is a uh, delightful um, British man, English, whatever. Uh, he's sassy and witty. You know the scoop. Um, and he was he was awesome. He gave me a hard time. He was one of the uh, the first academics um, to uh, give me a hard time about things. Which that uh, a lot of times people are scared to give comics a hard time. Um, because we are ruthless animals, apparently. Uh, but he was really awesome to talk to, so we, we have a fantastic talk about marketing and Lyme disease and a bunch of fun stuff. So make sure and tune in next week. Thank you for listening. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are.
Hello, I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Young. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. <laughs> suicide Buddies. <laughs> That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. <laughs> He's like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> <laughs> That's like literally what happened to Batman. He literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm, a, I'm, I'm a, bat. a bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a I don't know what you want from me. And my, uh, and my a, girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My, uh, my, 